Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up today, this one, this one's a special one. This one's an honor. Um, writer, director, novelist, Nicholas Meyer, director of, uh, um, writer, director of Time After Time, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, but first off, interesting stuff I watched, watched this week. Um, I had missed in the theaters Monos. I don't know um, if anyone, it's a Colombian director, although it was based on a, a New York, the production is based out of New York. Um, what's cool about it is uh, I knew someone who was worked on it, and it's always really pleasant whenever you can look someone in the eye, a friend that worked on something, and said they did a good job, and they did do a good job from what I saw. It's um, it's interesting. Um, it's uh, kind of got a, uh, a um, red dawn, poetic red dawn slash Lord of the Flies vibe to it uh the director is alejandro landes um um julian nicholson um she's the most recognizable face in it otherwise it's around a bunch of kids and um she really strips down um performance wise it's uh it's a very very dirty physically dirty performance that's uh really interesting to watch got to make a libby score to it um yeah i recommend that Uh, other interesting thing i saw this week was uh I finally got around to the last of last year's documentary nominees, Hale County, this morning, this evening. Um, it's, I really have a soft spot for um, DSLR shot movies. I, I think a lot of, um, they get a bad rap in filmmaking circles just because um, everyone can shoot it. The um, uh, depth of field is so weak. Um color space sometimes these are all the reasons i like them i i like i like technically made movies that feel like they're handmade and um what's fascinating about it is it's a great slice of life um but it's also also feels like a a photography installation like it was it would feel like the director shot everything and shot everything by themselves and so it's just very very immersive um um that's on prime right now so um I have now officially seen all of last year's Oscar documentary nominees, so yay me. So Nicholas Meyer is on today's episode. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, uh, his new book is The Adventures, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. It's his fourth Sherlock Holmes novel that he quote-unquote edited. Um... He started out his career, it was technically his uh, second published novel, but I think it was his first one. He wrote it during the writer's strike around like 73, I think. He's, he, also, he also has a really great memoir called uh, The View from the Bridge about um, mostly his Hollywood career. Um, and um, But um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see um, it's slightly obscured by the microphone, but one of the three posters I have in the basement is... Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And um, saying, when people ask you your favorite movie, it's inherently reductive. Um, it's also an exercise of, like, you know, people trying to be um, 
daring with their choice or um or, or at least show the part of their personality and they could be daring they could be pretentious they could be esoteric they can be you know um populist with it um you know or, or they can be genuine uh, very commonly it seems like people have a tendency to go back to um the movie they saw as a kid you know um when like stories were new they hadn't seen that many plots and the first movie that captivated them that showed them what a movie could do um and rather kind in many ways is that for me um it's a movie I, like me and my brother used to watch uh we i mean or at the very least we thought had the coolest uh uh space battle and we would play with our toys with it and um so when you grow up um some of us uh maybe don't have the same fondness for the Goonies or whatever that we did when we were that age. And uh, when I started becoming a snobby Scotland film brat, um, which, you know, pick a point to date that, um, Wrath of Khan still held up for me. And um, it's fascinating um, where, you know, Hollywood's so dominated by IPs right now. And you could argue that Star Trek was the first a franchise that aged um, aged with its audience and um, you know there's a great description of why Rathacon works from like I remember from TV Guy where it just basically said Kirk has a midlife crisis on top of why everything else is about the movie is great but um, it it's fascinating that Meyer came from this from the outside and he it's not even the purest dis distillation about what makes Star Trek work but um and, and obviously Star Trek has a lot of um, baggage with it and always has had the, the nerdy baggage to it or the giant cannon um, and the lack of accessibility to some people. And there's some really, really bad, indulgent Star Trek out there. But being pretty much, Brathicon being my favorite movie, um, when, I was, when I was eight and when I'm 38... Um, the coolest thing is when I show it to people, you know, we all have this tendency to want to show people our favorite things, whether it's, you know, make them listen to our favorite song or, um, tell them when they read our favorite books or just the, the pieces of art that are touching to us. And, and for a long period, like anyone who was close friends with me, I watched, made them, I was so excited to get them to watch this movie with them and, and I'd watch them watch it and react to it. And, um, and, um, we talk about this a little bit in the interview, but I remember, uh, you know, I would tap a friend on the shoulder and say, like, this movie's, Rathacon has a great third act, and I'd always point on, that tap on, like, this movie is perfect from here on out. Or um, um, the part, spoiler alert, where um, um, the Enterprise ducks down and then rises back up after the Reliant passes it, I would point to a friend and be like, this, the way the music cue works on it, which is such a great Horner score, this is my favorite moment in a movie, um, which is, again, very reductive. But uh, the coolest thing is that it didn't disappoint. People weren't disappointed with it. I've never really heard. I've heard vague, at best, complaints about the movie. Everyone seems to love it because it's just a fun adventure story with soul to it. And it's dramatic, but as exemplifying the Horner score, there's just so much of a sense of adventure to it. And so I, I, 
I, I went down a little bit of a hole when I first started realizing that this was a good movie as a teenager, and um, I didn't go far enough down the Nicholas Meyer hole. Like, time after time is almost equally as good as Wrath of Khan. It's um, uh, 7% Solution. He uh, didn't direct, Herbert Ross directed it, but it's a great script. And uh, I'm sorry to say I haven't read it. Uh, also, I'm sorry to say in the interview as I talked to him, I was only halfway through uh, Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. And I've since finished it, and I wish I could have talked to him about it, just because. Um, but uh, Meyer, it's it's frustrating just because uh, he was a great writer-director, and he was a one that engaged with audiences, and yet it felt like he didn't get that many shots. And um, he's still hustling. He's um, He mentions in the interview that he's not... Um, um, directing anymore but he's still writing and obviously he's still writing novels um the other fascinating thing about the interview is um as i said before film fans seem to make for the best interviews and man he's he's different generation but he's just and there's just one point one of the coolest things um Rathacon has this great um uh in bat in battle and he mentions an influence on the that battle that i'd never heard before and it was fascinating to get that and he, he made a big point to say, uh, guess who directed this? And he held me up and he said, it's Dick Powell. And I recognized the name, but I just feigned, oh, yeah, wow, yeah. Like I knew exactly what he was talking about. And he was pointing out that it was an actor who's, uh, you know, directed maybe two or three movies that did this. But I sure wouldn't have to pretend and couldn't acknowledge that I didn't know what he was talking about. But um, his... Uh, He's, you'll, you'll see he's a very uh, adept mind who, uh, naming credits, but he's great wit, um, uh, so well-read, um, gr- obviously great storyteller uh, all around. And it is, it is just really one of the most exciting things that's happened to me in a while to be able to talk to Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> You have the Wrath of Khan poster behind you. You noticed that. I thought I was going to have to point that out. Um, yeah, I have. Um, you're one of the three posters in the basement. Uh, yeah, we will. We will definitely get into my uh, particular enthusiasm for Wrath of Khan, but I also don't want to uh, minimize the rest of your career too, especially in light of uh, your new book. But um, thank was, you. Yeah, no, it's been funny because I've been reading um, for the last two days. Just been rereading View from the Bridge, and I kind of feel like. We've been talking already, or at least one-sided. Been talking for like the last day and a half while I've been taking notes. I've been listening to Holst uh, preparing for leading into this. And uh, a few years ago, I remember I made a, a mix for um, a friend of uh, one of my, or just my favorite movie cues. And um, I made like three of them. And his response after after listening to it was like, why all the fucking Star Trek? Um, good questions. <laughs> Well, I mean, clearly reading the book, I mean, your music knowledge clearly leads to the great scores you've worked with. They're like the Horner stuff in particular, but I mean, clearly you're, you're like just even reading the stuff about Holst or Stravinsky going into Star Trek VI, that stuff definitely carries across. Well, I come from a family of all musicians. Who's the musicians in your family? Well, my mother was a concert pianist. My sister teaches violin in Beverly Hills and is a violinist. 
My grandfather was a violinist in the Boston Symphony Orchestra for 25 years, and my father, who was a psychoanalyst, was an excellent pianist and a terrific sight reader. You could put any piece of music on the piano in front of him, and he'd read it right off. Um, do you just the one sister, or how many? How many in the family? I have three sisters. Okay, and you're from New York. East Sixty Second Street. East Sixty Second Street. I just worked in uh, New York, and I was on the West Side on Sixty Second Street. You never said hello. <laughs> are you in a Are you in a Santa Monica base now? Yeah. We have never met. This is our first time, but I have been in the same room with you once. I saw a 70 millimeter print of Wrath of Khan where you did a Q&A, and I saw that in Santa Monica. And this would have been, I want to say, 2010 maybe. Does that seem familiar to you at all? I'm sure you've been yeah, there. Yeah, it's probably at the Arrow. Yeah, it was the Arrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, is it, the Arrow's not there anymore, is it? Or it's changing to something different? Of course different? it is. Of course it is. I just went there to see Ninochka the other night. Really? How was that? It was great. Um, they were doing a whole series of screwball comedies, and Nanuchka is one of my favorites. Um, it wasn't a great print. I have a better DVD of it at home. But just to see Garbo and Melvin Douglas playing off each other big was great. How big was the crowd? Oh, it, the arrow usually fills up, so it's somewhere between 200 and 400 people. Oh, Man, I you talked in the book about having fights with your dad over whether what the best best Marx Brothers movie, and I remember I have had only one amazing theatrical Marx Brothers experience that never got top, and it was mainly because it was a full crowd and every joke just worked perfectly. But it was because the crowd was so perfectly tuned. The Arrow New Year's Day, which will be day after tomorrow, the Arrow always shows Marx Brothers on New Year's Day, so it'll be a night at the opera. Uh, this New Year's Day. Was it Duck Soup was your favorite one, though? Well, I think Duck Soup is, yeah, the definition of anarchy. Okay, so uh, let's go back. Um, do you remember the first movie you saw? I do. What was it? The Beggar's Opera, directed by Peter Brook, starring Laurence Olivier, Dorothy Tewton, Stanley Holloway, George Devine, the, the musical arrangements by Arthur Bliss. I was about seven years old. I had never seen a movie before. We didn't have a TV. And I, when they were going to hang Captain McKeith, I ran out of the movie theater screaming, terrified. And then it became in a sort of counterphobic response my favorite movie for a long time um, and my big man crush on Laurence Olivier which you also talk about whenever it came down to a 7% uh, solution in the book but um, what theater was it at? Uh, it was at a, a theater called The Baronet on 3rd Avenue and 60, 60th Street it was The Baronet, The Cornet and then Cinema 1, Cinema 2 they were all four lined up in a row there on 3rd Avenue was right it, across from Bloomingdale's. Okay. Well, um, what was your main theater to go to whenever you see movies as a kid? Well, once I, you know, acquired the habit, um, where there is now an enormous, gigantic 
you know, upscale apartment building. Before that, it was Alexander's department store, but before that, it was the RKO 58th Street. And it was a movie palace from the vaudeville era of opulence. It was unbelievable. The seats, it was a city block long. And it, it was a total fantasy. The rows were so far apart that, you know, Wilt Chamberlain could not have put his feet up on the seats in, in front of them. And there was a side off to the left with a matron in a white outfit and a flashlight who came up and down. Uh, that was the kids' section. And I would spend every moment that I could. And my recollection was they mainly showed Fox pictures, but I don't know why. But I just remember Tyrone Power and King of the Kyber Rifles um, and a, a black and white movie which was a kind of a horror movie where a guy was trapped in a place where the walls were closing in on him. Um, and I never understood, I was trying to understand what movies were. And did they really have to stop every time the angle changed and like put the camera someplace else? That seemed too preposterous to be true. Do you remember how consciously is noted, noting that, that at one specific moment? Yeah. During, during this. Yeah, I just thought, really, do they, because I, you know, we had a whole movie camera, a little wind-up thing, which we later made my first movie with. I also never understood why it was that when the hero was in peril, he always met the most beautiful women anybody had ever seen. And I just thought, well, where do they keep these women? Because I've never seen them in real life. Um, and I just, movies just fascinated me. Where were those women? Um, you talk in the book about, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea one of your favorites growing up? And you said it still kind of is, or still kind of holds up? There's the, the Nautilus is over there. You can't see it. You pointed out my Rathacon poster. You still have a Nautilus, uh, icon in the office. I have a theory that... Our first experiences, childhood experiences, whether they have to do with experiences or people or art, tend to be the ones that exert the longest ironclad hold on our uh, memories, our impressions, what kind of people we turn into. I was introduced when I was very young by my father to the books of Jules Verne, along with Sherlock Holmes. And I gobbled this stuff up. And it just so happened that in around 1954, uh, maybe it was 52, I can't remember, Walt Disney made this movie of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it's, it's a terrific movie. And it holds up very well from several standpoints. It's a very depressing movie, in fact. Really? Um, oh, my God. It ends with the atom bomb going off. And uh, it, it, the, the philosophic exchanges between Nemo and Professor Aranax, um, if you're actually listening to what's being said, is not too jolly. Um, in addition to which, it is brilliantly designed. 
It was designed by a man who didn't get credit for it, named Harper Goff. And Harper Goff said to Walt Disney, you know, when they were talking about the Nautilus, he said, in the book, it's more or less described as looking like a cigar. And he said, no one's going to want to look like look at a cigar for two hours. But it also says in the book that it's mistaken for a sea monster. So why don't you let me take a crack at this? And he more or less invented steampunk. Are and you, the are you familiar with uh, the Alan Moore ser uh, um, series League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I don't know if you had any overlap. Is it a comic book? It's a comic book. It was turned into a terrible movie, but it's basically Alan Moore is trying to make a unified um, universe of a lot of literary or just in general pop culture characters. But he starts in the 1890s. So there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes in it, but they also take forth, I want to say, the design from the 50s film for the Nautilus. The Nautilus is in there, too. Well, he was he was a kind of a genius, Harper Goff, and the interior is just as spectacular as the hull. Um, and the Disney in-house composer, a man with the unremarkable name of Paul Smith, uh, wrote the music, which is very Debussy-like music for it. Really? And Oh, yeah. And Nemo, James Mason, that, he was Nemo. He, he was this tragic character. And, yeah, the movie holds up... Very well. It's very uncompromising. I except was... for the funny seal. <sighs> funny seal. Nemo has a pet, has a pet seal. I um last night uh there's about three or four. I still have a gap of three or four films of yours I haven't seen. So I watched uh, Volunteers last night, but I was very close to watching Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea just because you had raved about it in the book. Once it gets you know fully cranked up. Uh, it's it's a terrific film. Kirk Douglas is very good in it. Uh, Peter Lorre is very good in it. And Paul Lukash as Aranax is a wonderful piece of casting. Were you at all familiar? Uh, David Fincher was trying to get a remake off the ground. Have you ever heard anything about that? Of 20,000 Leagues? Yeah. No, I wasn't. It's like, well, it's for the, me, the I the think... The Disney it, formula of remaking everything right now. Yeah, I suspect that. Here's my feeling: nobody should make a movie about Robin Hood, because Errol Flynn nailed Robin Hood. That's it. There's no point. I don't go to see them. It, it's ridiculous. Um, and point. so I, it would. I won't say I wouldn't see it. Twenty thousand. Somebody said, "Hey, this is really wonderful." Um, but I've seen imitations of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Television has, you know, had it uh, their way with it. And it, it, it's, it's all kind of corny. Okay. Um, you, uh, you alluded to it earlier, but uh, as a child, you made your own remake of uh, Around the World in 80 Days? Yes. When I, this Jules Verne mania, which began with 20,000 Leagues, Two years later, Mike Todd released Around the World in 80 Days. When you went to see the Mike Todd Around the World in 80 Days, there was a program. It cost $2. This right? is, is this the one that was talked about in the book, that you can make your own? No, this is just a program for those. Yes. No, this is it. And in this program, there are many articles. 
including this one. You too can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. This became my, you know, life-changing inspiration. So and how long were you shooting for this? It was your oh it, year. Who was involved? Years. Well, my father was the director of it. We had this eight millimeter wind-up Revere camera. I was Phileas Fogg. My best friend, who grew up to edit my movies, was Passepartout. We shot on weekends, on school vacations, on summer holidays. Shot for five years. You did you edit on eight millimeter? I mean, that's what you shot on, right? Oh yeah. What was... We had a splicing machine, and the kitchen table was just covered with film. And just when would you edit? On weekends or after you shot? When I was supposed to be learning something. And doing homework, which uh, you apparently were learning something, and it did help out eventually. Yeah, but I was I was a very indifferent student. I was I could only be learn things that I interested me, and the only things that really interested me were stories. And I would um, I recently sort of remembered that at dinner time, they would have to shut me up. They would have to say no plots, Nikki, no plots. Because I was always telling him the stories of something I had seen. I forgot about that, and then I learned remembering it now. Um, I not to change from the jovial tone, but I had a I had a personal question I wanted to ask you. Do you mind if I ask it? If I mind, I'll say. Yeah, and I'll edit it out if you don't want it. But um, I'm curious about what your modern uh, you have. It's been the book you talked about um, when your mother died. Your dad had um, written a pamphlet called, or written something called Should the Patient Know the Truth? Yes. Did you see The Farewell this year? Uh, I have not yet seen it, but I gather that it's related to this very topic. Yeah, it's about the East-West phenomenon where they try to say in the East they tend to not tell about it just so no one just so the the um anyone who's dying doesn't have to feel the anxiety of their oncoming death um unless of course they actually feel it regardless yeah which i mean that's that was not to give too much of the movie away that ends up being kind of sidestepped in the movie but um but um so you described your parents uh in uh you wrote uh I forget which book of yours was autobiographical, but you made your parents in that book kind of circus people who worked. Yes, it, the, it was a novel called Confessions of a Homing Pigeon. And in that novel, my parents are depicted as trapeze artists working without a net. So where did the circus which love I, come from? Especially being like, did the circus come to New York? Well, Ringling Brothers, sure, came to New York. Absolutely came to Madison Square Garden. But I think um, I was, the way my parents appeared to me as a little boy was as much larger than life, incredibly glamorous figures. Um, it was post-war in New York. It was a very good time to be a middle-class person. There was a middle class. You could have access to the ballet, the opera, musicals, museums, 
I was taken screaming half the time to all these things. Um, and my parents were a charismatic couple. My father was a strikingly handsome guy. And I think women as well as men were extremely fond of him. And my mother uh, was, a, she loved giving parties. And, th and I think I sort of saw them as working up there on some kind of social tightrope. Um, and so when it came time to writing an alternate version, a fictional autobiography, which is what Confessions of a Homing Pigeon is, I depicted them as circus acrobats. Uh, I also, for the sake of my plot, needed to get rid of them. And so I, I didn't want a long drawn out illness. So I had them have a circus ac accident. Okay. I mean, you also... Uh, then, then I was in the Dickensian position I wanted to be. You also mentioned that um, you've t talked about, you came to the epiphany that the way you write Sherlock Holmes, you're kind of writing him like he's your father, or as you imagine your father. Well, there are overlaps. Um, there are overlaps to when I was in high school, um... Well, I, I should begin by saying my father probably gave me the Holmes books to read when I was about 11, and I tore through them. In high school, where I was, as I said, an indifferent student, people would say to me, oh, your father is a shrink, uh, your old man's a shrink, is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. So I said, Pop, um, are you a Freudian? And he said, it's really a kind of a silly question. And I said, why? Why is it a silly question? And he said, because it's no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis and not at least begin with Freud than it is to discuss, say, the discovery of America and not start with Columbus or the Vikings, but to suppose that nothing has happened since the Vikings is to be pretty rigid, pretty doctrinaire. And the same is true of psychoanalysis. Uh, and he, he said, you know, when a patient comes to see me, I listen to what they say. I listen to how they say it. I'm especially curious as to what they do not say. I am also very interested in whether they are on time, what their body language is, what kind of clothing they're wearing. I am, in short, searching for clues from them as to why they are not happy. And I said, gee, that sounds like detective work, what you're doing. And he said, well, it, in some ways it resembles detective work. And then I had my little epiphany that my father, I suddenly realized, who he had always reminded me of. He had always reminded me of Sherlock Holmes and the way he would discuss, you know, people and cases and stuff and this, sort of this observation and, and uh, deduction or induction. Um, and from there, over the next 10 years, I fell to wondering how much Doyle knew of the life and writing of Sigmund Freud. And you started doing the, first... the research, then you found the, the it was the nine-year overlap, like uh, Freud died in 39, and 
Doyle Dryden 30, was it? Yeah, both in London. Both doctors. Holmes is a cocaine addict. Freud was for a time a cocaine addict. And he endorsed cocaine he, as a... Uh, he wrote a paper where he mentioned uh, loose cocaine use, which was... Um, you, I'm, I'm getting this from the book. You wrote this in the book, right? Yeah, two Kern, Koenigstein and Curl are two ophthalmologists who uh, began using cocaine as an eye uh, as an anesthetic during eye surgery. Okay. And then you add to this that Arthur Conan Doyle studied ophthalmology in Vienna, no less. So there, the overlaps are really starting to proliferate into a blizzard of possibilities. But being just a storyteller, um, it, it didn't last as nonfiction. It became the 7% solution. Um, speaking of the, um, your reading habits as a teenager, you mentioned that a lot of classics you uh, were reading, the uh, Classics Illustrated comic book version. And then with the new book, you referenced um, uh, the Will Eisner uh, book about the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Are, I mean, are you a comic book reader or are you lapsed or... Um, definitely lapsed. I, I had a huge comic book collection as a kid. I loved them, whether it was Batman, Superman, or, but I think most of all, I loved those classics illustrated books. And who, whoever, you know, dreamt up that idea, uh, whose goal, I suspect, was to get people to go and read the real book after they read the comic book, I was his target I, I absolutely followed through on that every time, whether it was Treasure Island, The Prisoner of Zenda, King Solomon's Mines, Macbeth, Moby Dick, Three Musketeers, didn't matter. Uh, I just went from one to the other. Um, and I had this big collection. And of course, when I went off to college, that collection mysteriously disappeared. Um, so I, I don't have it anymore. Which seems to be a um, common uh, thing of people in the 50s who had a comic book collection, or in the 60s, or comics got thrown out. Um, so you then went to, you went to Iowa? University of Iowa and Iowa City, yes. Something in the book I picked up on that I had never thought about or heard before, Did, were you, you were going for a theater, but was it, were you mainly going for acting? Well, I thought I wanted to be an actor, um, I, I think I was at a loss with regard to my own personality and the idea of pretending to be other people, I think held some appeal, but I didn't seem to have a very good aptitude for it. Um, which is when I discovered directing, I didn't even know what a director was or did until I had one yelling at me on stage and thought, well, he's sitting with the coffee. And I'm up here being yelled at. Um, I was in a show one in Summerstock one summer, and I, I played an old man in a comedy called Three Men on a Horse. And it took me three hours to get into old man makeup. And I knew that I wasn't any good in this role. And three hours to put that on every night um, was pretty discouraging. So I, I gave that up in favor of the directing. How long and was when that people, run? Oh, it was a few weeks in the summer. Okay. And it was in repertory with other plays. So it wasn't every night. It was every third night. Um, 
But people say to me, well, when did you decide to become a writer? And the true answer, as true as I know how to make it, is that I never decided any such thing. I just always did it from the time I was very little. I would make up stories, and in the beginning, my father would write them down for me. Uh, and they were stories about how our dog, Lempy, carried the newspaper home from the grocery store in her mouth and things like that. And then at a certain point, he said, see here, I'm tired of being your stenographer. Uh, you must write your own stuff. And basically, I've been doing that ever since. When did you start writing your stories down? Was this in Iowa? Oh, no, way before. This is all through grade school. This is all through high school. This is what I did instead of learning anything. We, I mean, these are just plays, uh, prose. There's... Plays, prose, movie scripts. Didn't matter. What is your... Uh... Still doesn't. <laughs> well said. Uh, what is your uh, current writing habits like? Are you a, a daily writer? Do you keep a journal? I don't keep a journal. I walk around with this thing. It's a little notebook that you get from Staples. And on one page... It can say, pick up laundry. And on another page, it can say a line of dialogue. On another page, it's a phone call I have to make. or And, and then another page, it's a plot point. It, it's just all random stuff. Um, I don't... I write something every day, even if it's only emails. Um, but I... I don't talk unless I have something to say, and I don't write unless I have something that's already sort of written in my head. I don't sit down and start writing with nothing having gone on before. Because I know one of the consistent so, things in the book you talk a lot about is um, you, you, you'll talk about like this short writing burst where you write these, uh, everything you write seems really fast. And then you point out, well, yeah, but I've been awake in bed for months trying to think this stuff out through. There are two, in my opinion, and I suppose in my experience, there are two basic creative methods, which we'll call the Beethoven method and the Mozart method. Mozart did it all in his head. He liked to shoot pool. He was apparently a very good pool player. And he would compose music while he was shooting pool. And he then would copy down what he had put in his head. He would transcribe it. There are very few corrections in Mozart manuscripts. Um, he said for him that Writing music was like peeing. It was just a natural thing that just happened. Beethoven, the whole process is externalized. You got these You're holding up the book. books. And it, if you look at Beethoven's music books, they look like demented chickens running back and forth across staff paper. Things crossed out to the point of incomprehensibility. But he had to do it all externally, whereas Mozart was shooting pool. Um, there is no one method of writing any more than there's one method of 
getting yourself to sleep at night. It's whatever works. Um, most of my writing seems to take place in my head. I now take the precaution of, you know, writing some of it down so it doesn't, so I remember it. Um, I, I walk a lot. I, I've started walking in the last few years. I, I walk between three and five miles a day. There's nothing to see. It's Santa Monica. Um, Santa so you wind pretty, up. Though. Yeah, it's very pretty. It's pretty. But you know what they, Mark Twain said, heaven for climate, hell for society. <laughs> uh, there, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, you, you've seen it. I like it. It's okay. But really, it enables you to let your mind come out and play. I read and that. I don't know where I, I don't know where ideas come from. I don't. I read that Aaron Sorkin say that um, he has to take like seven showers a day when he's writing. That explains the drought. <laughs> There's Chinatown. So um, I, while you were um, writing, you were movie reviewing. How, how many movies were you seeing while you were there? You said you had the most popular uh, column in the Big Ten at the time. Um, I was told. I was told, yeah. I reviewed 400 movies over four years, uh, including Summers. Wait, wait, wait what was, period of time I, was this? 64 to 68. Here's the thing. Roger Ebert started uh, his career, I want to say around 66, writing at the University of Illinois paper. So your column, uh -huh. your column was more popular than Roger Ebert's at the time. Just want to put that out there. Well, if that's, if that's true, as I say, I don't know how these things are ascertained. I was told somewhere in my life during that period that these were the the most popular columns, and maybe they were better than Roger Ebert's. Um, maybe that was the problem with them. I mean, um, you you mentioned like what what were you seeing? I mean, just all the great movies in the '60s. I mean, in the book, you mentioned Alpha Bill as, as an offhand thing, but uh, I mean, what movies were you particularly being taken with? There were there were four movie theaters in Iowa City at the time. And it was a theater chain that I think was run by a company called Blank. I'm not sure. But they there were a couple of theaters that showed sort of mainstream studio fare. And then there were two sort of art cinemas um, where I did see movies like Alphaville, where I did see um, one of my all-time favorite movies, The Organizer. The Organizer? Uh, Mario Monaco. I'm unfamiliar. It's one, my, it's one of my ten favorite movies. What is it? It's directed. Um, the organizer came out in the nineteen mid nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty five. Let me look it up. Um, it was directed by Mario Monticelli, who also did the big deal on Madonna Street, um, and he um, and it starred Marcello Mastroianni. Okay. In, in an absolutely unforgettable role like nothing else he ever did um and you know one of the great things of of um of movies uh is that they can make you interested in things that you never thought you would be interested in in a million years and for two hours it becomes the most important thing. Right. And 
The organizer, it says here, a former high school teacher turned unionist, tries to organize workers laboring in inhuman conditions at a late 19th century textile mill, Turin, Italy. And it's one of the more shattering and involving, it's a movie almost as a novel with a huge cast of characters and you get to know and care about all these people so much and about what they're trying to accomplish in this idealistic professor who sort of looks like a nervous hamster most of the time and he's poor as a church mouse and he falls off a freight train is how he winds up in the town. Um, but when he starts to talk about the rights of the workers, he suddenly stands up and becomes animated and he's, he's transformed as an orator. And then when it's over, he kind of like shrinks back down again to this shy professor. Um, and uh, anyway, it's, a, it's a Giuseppe Rotuno photographed it. Um, and a lot of the people or some of the people from Big Deal on Madonna Street are, are in the movie, including Mastroianni. Um, and I saw that in Iowa City and I never, I never forgot it. And when I got to Paramount and I could order up any movie I wanted, I said, I want you to run this movie for me. And all they could find at the time, this is in like 1980, was a 16 millimeter print, Giuseppe Rotuno in 16 millimeter, not the greatest, but Criterion, thank God for them, they put it out on Blu-ray, beautifully restored. And it's just a great movie. I'll check it out. God bless uh, Criterion. Well, this gets to something I find interesting in your work. I, um, I love you as a filmmaker, but I love you as a writer-director, and I like your writing. And I, I'm, I'm not I, – I mean, you, you talk novelistically about stuff, but I find a lot of the stuff of yours I like uh, or particularly love, like Wrath of Khan or Time After Time, are – they're they're locomotives of narrative like you, you they're tightly plotted like uh, one of my most the reasons i thought found you in particular interesting is there's this period i was obsessed with with um time after time seven percent solution and wrath of Khan in particular are these scripts that set everything up in the first act and pay everything off they set up in the third act really well like every little detail like it, i remember comparing you to um Zemeckis and Gale's early scripts, or more recently would have been the uh, Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg scripts. But, I mean, was structures, is structure something that you particularly find uh, a priority when you're writing your stuff? The short answer to that is yes. Uh, I am, structure is very important to me. Uh, maybe, you know, sometimes too important. But what I wanted... I always think that if you have a compelling story, and, and that includes that we, we like things that pay off, that add up, that circle back, that we've forgotten all about. You know, when you see that empty chair in The Wrath of Khan, you go, oh, wait, this, this is about the death of Spock. And by the way, you forget in The Human Stain that... Fawnia and Coleman Silk are, are dead from the beginning of the movie, but we forget that. Um, By the way, and I should really I quickly like... mention, you were my gateway to uh, Philip Roth. I, I... Oh, 
you're a lucky man for whatever reason, however you got the Philip Roth. Yeah, I had, um, a, I had a big obsession in college, yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I got to do two of them. I think the better movie is Elegy, based on his novel, The Dying Animal. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a movie I'm quite proud of. But, yeah, structure to me is important, and it, I think structure and character sort of cross-fertilize, um, or, or ought to. Um, Aristotle said that, you know, character is, is destiny, the choices that we, that we make. So you, um, after college, went back to New York and worked uh, at Paramount? I did. I got a job in the publicity department at Paramount Pictures. I didn't know what publicity was. I'm still a little hazy on it. Um, what, but period, I, what period was this? 70, well, I was graduated in 1968. I spent the summer in Europe. I came back in the fall. And by winter, I was selling tobacco at Bloomingdale's. And then I, I got this job, I think, through... Uh, somebody who was a secretary there who knew my dad and said, you should go apply or something. So I did. And my job was writing press kit, Paramount movies. Did you write um, like the these Godfather were not one? electronic press? I may have written, worked on the Godfather press kit. I may have done that. I did If, which was Malcolm McDowell's breakthrough movie, I did Paramount Romeo and Juliet. I did Darling Lily. I did um, a movie called, well, they kept changing its name, The Betrayal, Fräulein Doctor. I did The Molly Maguires, which is a terrific picture, which no one saw. It was James Wong Howe's last, last movie. And basically, I didn't write them from scratch. You would get them from the unit publicist who was with the movie, who you know would bat out these mini bios and stuff and it was all written in variety e and my job was to translate it into english uh using the new york times style copy book and uh mainly i used their xerox machines to print my scripts you wrote um your your first book is a love story story which you got the money from that to go to la Correct. Um, it was originally not called the love story story. I wanted to call it. What can you say about a 25 year old girl who died, which is the opening line of, of Eric Siegel's novel. And then the subtitle was the love story story. But by the time they got finished with it, they made a knockoff cover of the other book and took away my original title. So people thought they were buying love story and they weren't. And so you got to L.A., uh, you, had, um, you had an agent from New York that turned out to L.A., but then you started, your first few scripts were TV movies? The first few scripts that got made were TV movies, yeah, for sure. Um, actually, my first script, which is a very sort of disagreeable story, I, I suppose I should find it funny now, but I, I can't quite manage it. Um, I was hired by two producers at Warner Brothers to write a horror movie in which the men and not the women, for a change, were the victims. So I wrote this horror movie, 
that I thought was pretty cool. It was called the honey factor. And I was proud of it because I thought, okay, this is original. The women are not the victims. The men are the victims. And it's a movie that was smart and flexible enough that it could play in a drive-in in New Jersey or it could play at the Cinema One in New York and, and both crowds would find, you know, enjoyment in it and, and good good things. And then um, when I, I made my big mistake, I went to visit my parents for a couple of weeks during pre-production and when I came back, the producer said, you know, a screenplay, it's, like a building for a blueprint for a building when you're doing the blueprint you may find that you've left out an outlet or a window so you had to make some adjustments and i said yeah and so we we you weren't here so we made some adjustments i said oh can i see the script he said of course so he showed me the script which was no longer called the honey factor it was called the invasion of the bee girls b-e-e and all the smart parts had been taken out and i was pretty mortified and uh you still haven't I seen called... this movie right no i've never seen it Did somebody you... tried to show me once and i wouldn't watch you were told it was um, a camp classic or whatever it was yeah, that sounds like a poor man's apology for crap to me. People like to make fun uh, of it and don't really enjoy watching. I can't, when people I describe no camp, idea. like it's it's always the most backhanded way of talking about something that uh, too many cooks or just something that didn't come together properly. Sometimes. Well, this certainly didn't come. Together. I mean, it was. It it, it would have been, or I think it could have been, a rather intriguing horror film but they didn't want intrigue they just you know wanted the paramus drive-in and um so i i didn't see it i called my agent i said you know we've got to take my name off this picture and he said no 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 we have to take this lady's name off the picture that's on it with you and i said well you don't understand this, this movie is really bad and he said you don't understand. You need the credit. So it's the Writers Guild that is the final arbiter of screenplays yeah. in Hollywood. Not not the studio, not the producers. And so I won that little battle. So my name is on it. You write a lot in the book about the uh, fight between the Writers Guild a lot. But um, So um, during the Writers' Strike, you write uh, the book of 7% Solution, and then when it sells, you make the stipulation, you write in the script, and it gets um, nominated for an Oscar. Um, you seem, in the book at least, pretty blasé about getting nominated for an Oscar for screenwriting. Oh, I assure you I wasn't. <laughs> I was not blasé at all. I was thrilled. I thought it was the greatest thing. I had gone with my girlfriend. She was going to take me skiing, which I would never been. And I was stuck halfway down some mountain in freezing cold in Colorado. And I went to get a hot cocoa at some uh, halfway place and made a phone call. And that's where I learned. And I was, I got down that mountain all right. So was that, um, 
I mean, you, obviously you worked time after time. You had uh, adapted like the first 60 pages of a novel, somebody you knew from Iowa, and you optioned that, and you wrote from there. Did you come up with the rest of the story on your own then from, from those first 60 pages? Well, my recollection, and I always have to add because I found this out the hard way, that as good as my memory is about a lot of things, it isn't 100%. I don't think most people's... Is. In fact, I think the, the first line of my memoir is all about the fallibility of memory and whether eyewitnesses are reliable or not. Yeah, and Having said that, on too, yeah. yeah, what I remember is that my friend Carl Alexander, who had been at Iowa when I was there, he was in the grad school, um, said, I have 65 pages of an, uh, 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 sort of an outline of a novel which is loosely inspired, he said, by the seven person solution. Would you read and give me your thoughts? And back then I had time to do that sort of thing. So I said, sure. And I read his 65 pages and I wrote him a critique, uh, you know, and, and then I was sort of prepared to think no more about it, except that lying awake at night I couldn't stop thinking about it. I knew that in a gazillion years, I would never have such an ingenious idea. Ideas are not my specialty. Um, but recognizing ideas, that may be my specialty. Um, and I just thought, wow, it's, it's so much more a movie than it is a book. It's such an inherently visual idea. And I went back to Alphaville and how people you know, it becomes sci-fi just because you give it another name. You know, hand me that communicator. And the person hands him a book. Uh, that sort of thing. And, and I thought two guys in Victorian costumes running around modern-day San Francisco and everything they see is sci-fi hardware. Um, and it wouldn't cost that much and so on and so on and so forth. And, and then about... I don't know whether it was one month or three months of mulling this over in the wee hours when I suddenly thought, you're a schmuck. Why don't you option this book? <laughs> so I, I called him up and said, Carl, Carl, here's what I want to do. And that's and then I just you know wrote it how I wanted to write it, which took about seven days because I had been thinking about it for three months. And then I... Hence the Mozart uh, style, the Mozart uh, creation method. I, I guess, yeah, uh, and I and I guess, um, I, you know, I, I don't shoot pool particularly, but I was doing whatever it was I was doing, and then I said to him when it was done, here's the script, help yourself, take whatever you want and stick it in your book if you, if you want to, because I figured... If the movie gets made and the movie, the novel gets in, they'll sort of cross-fertilize and so like that. So it ended up kind of like your version of Arthur C. Clarke Kubrick coming up to, with 2001 together. Well, it's a pretty grandiose comparison, but yeah, right. <laughs> um, going back real briefly, do you where were, in your teenage years? What were the origins of your uh, what what were your sci-fi things you were reading as a teenager? What was my sci-fi reading? Yeah, or what was your formation of your brain? Because you, you seemed like you were taken with uh, Star Wars and you, you kind of started following space operas and around this time, around time after time. But going back, 
what what was your sci your sci-fi seeds well they were basically two it was either jules verne or it was hg wells it was the invisible man the time machine the war of the worlds verne you know verne and wells are very very different writers verne did all the actual research when he sent a man to the moon and from earth to moon he did the math and he figured out it was going to be from cape canaveral florida and it was going to come down it was going to parachute into the water and they would have to pick it up um he had figured it all out when hg wells sent the men to the moon he just invented an anti-gravity substance called cavorite and they just floated up. When Verne designed the Nautilus, the displacement of water for ballast to make the thing rise or sink, he had worked it all out. Um, I wound up loving them both for entirely different reasons, even though they were rivals, I guess. Um, I didn't read a lot of science fiction. Okay. I didn't read a lot of Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke or any of that. I read uh, Walter Miller, The Canticle for Leibowitz. Oh, I'm but not that familiar was like, with that. Walter Miller. Oh. <laughs> the Canticle, the Canticle, Canticle for Leibowitz. Here, okay, so we should get to this and get it out of the way. Um, so when I tell people my favorite movie of all time, uh, I say I tell you about the con. And what it is is it was a movie I watched a lot as a kid. And became, you know, see with, when you're a kid. No, when yeah, you're a kid. yeah. And you watch, you watch it with a kid. You or as a kid, you watch it with family. Um, my brother and I, as a kid, we thought the, um, uh, the the last dog fight was the coolest thing ever. And um, then as you got older, I, I was raised in the '80s and in the era of some, you know, generally considered one, uh, one of the weaker eras of cinema, or American cinema at least. And what happened was when I started becoming a teenager, you mentioned earlier that you you think that a lot of um, the formative artistic moments happen when you're younger. A lot of the thesis of this podcast so far has been that I think it happens in your teenage years. And I don't know if there's a difference between hearing you talk because it seems like you had a much more sophisticated and you were, uh, had a lot more interesting art pushed onto you at an earlier age. But... I was spoon-fed. I was spoon-fed culture like nobody's business. And the only downside to it was that in those days, when you went to a friend's birthday party and they were going to a movie, they made me wear a necktie. And what was that? Boy, I, yeah, it's a different world. Yeah. I made when when I went with my dad to football games, I had to wear a necktie. Uh, it was just it was it was you know, and I instinctively hated. I think I went into the movie business because I learned you didn't have to wear a necktie. Um, which was just, and by the way, now I don't mind them so much, but you know, that was then, um, I, yeah, I was, I was force fed a lot of stuff in which I initially had no interest, but the moment they got me there, the moment I was at the opera or at the ballet, I was over the moon. I just thought this is the great, I embraced all of that stuff. You know, there's a, and still do. There's a Manet exhibit on now at the Getty uh, here in L.A. that is just, I just saw it yesterday, is you go in there and weep. It's, it, they're so beautiful. I, um, I, I missed out the museums. Normally when I take my New York trip, I go and, yeah, I missed out this last this last trip. Um, 
uh, the thesis basically on my end of the thing was that uh, I know my parents aren't really interested in the arts, and so you had to discover in your teenage years. And a lot of people I've talked to, maybe it's the difference between parents who are interested in the arts versus ones who aren't, but a lot of... But sometimes, but sometimes people, yourself is obviously a great example. You've found it for yourself. Yeah. And whether you found it as a, as a kid or found it as a teenager, it's, you know, defined who you are. The parents of, uh, I think, Hector Berlioz, the last thing they wanted was for their son to become a composer. I don't think they were at all musical, but they should have thought of that before they named him Hector and knew that he was going to write an opera called The Trojans. What did they think was going to happen? I always wonder how much of that is, um, I mean, the the uh, commercial stipulation of just parents don't want their kids to go into this penniless art and, you know, starve, but... Um, Rathacon, basically, when I was a teenager, I came back to and started realizing, as opposed to, like, other movies from the 80s I'd watch, this one was still good. And, I mean, it really, Nick, it's like, it's, I, I, there's a few movies I have at this level, but, and I'm, I'm not as strong as I once was, but, like, for about five to seven years, if you were going to be a best friend of mine or a close friend of mine or were dated or anything, you had to sit with me and watch Rathacon. And I just sat there and watched your reaction. And the thing I, why I kept doing that over and over was because it always worked. Whenever I'd show, I don't know, like Empire Strikes Back or, or I don't know, like uh, Touch of Evil or something like that, you get a snicker from, here, from somebody. Touch or, of Evil gives you a snicker? I had a friend who made fun of like Charlton Heston as a Mexican, really? Um, yeah, you just, you, you just get a little, uh, you know. Okay, okay I get it. My middle daughter, her favorite movie, I don't know if it's still her favorite movie, is Reefy Fee. And okay. her test for, for any boyfriend was she would show them Reefy Fee. And if you didn't fall on the floor and roll at the mouth at the end of it, you know, whatever, then forget it. There was no future in this. By the way, you uh, referred a minute ago to the, uh, the dogfight in the Mutara Nebula. Yeah. Tracing one's influences, and I've, you know, I've been asked a lot of questions in my life, and one of them is about what are your influences? And influence is very tricky, sure, because we may think we know what's influenced us. We may wish that certain things influence us. Sounds cool. We might like you to think that this was an influence because it sounds good. But some of the biggest influences whether we're talking about art or people, teachers or friends, counselors, a guy you hit with your car, whatever, you may not be consciously aware of the effect that they have exerted on you. It took me a long time before I realized that one of the biggest influences on The Wrath of Khan was a movie called The Enemy Below. Did you ever see The Enemy Below? No. Don't sleep. Okay, what, what, what is it from? Robert Mitchum as a destroyer captain and Kurt Jurgens as the U-boat captain. You would never in a gazillion years get who directed this movie. I would pay you a gazillion dollars and I won't kill you by keeping you in suspense. You I'm would never gonna, get it. I'm not going to get it. Dick Powell. Really? Okay, um... 
Yeah, well, I always I, I used to be a music journalist when I was a teenager, and I remember uh, when I was really lazy, my first interview question was your influences, just because I was looking for a framework to describe how do I categorize you. Like that's the other thing about influences; it's always just like how wh you're you're just trying to figure out how am I taking this in? What am I supposed to be looking out for? You know, I mean, was it just a submarine um, cat and mouse thing that was? You that, bet. That makes sense because I remember pointing out to like you know, Rathacon in particular was such a blockbuster influence to people. Like like every time anyone took an IP, they're always like referencing Rathacon as like we want to take existing characters and do something you know a little soulful with them. And um, I know when the Abrams Star Trek came out, like his thing was he was trying to make it more Star Warsy, so it was like a you know smaller ship gun battle. But like the thing is in Rathacon, you felt these ships as being giant and slow moving but you also like this the intelligence of the people commanding them has to figure this out and the cat and mouse game came across so well but um but at the same time actually the thing i did want to tell you about is i still to this day remember uh, showing it to one girl i was dating and the moment where scotty says uh about spock he's dead already i will never forget her little whimper whenever she's heard that it was it's. I had a friend. That's very touching to me. I had another friend who we done this thing where we all showed our childhood movies to him, and he was really skeptical. And he quoted Spock for like weeks afterwards, just weeks afterwards. It's, yeah. It's um, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about this thing where you need to go back to uh, to replenish yourself, to watch your favorite movies whenever you're in the middle of something. And I know in Burnout, I watch Wrath of Khan when I'm in the middle of Burnout. These are lovely things to hear, and I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I'm deeply moved by what you're telling me. These, I mean, there. If you ask me, the movies I've seen the most, um, you know, where we get to the point where you watch the movie hundreds of times, including your childhood. Like, mm. I'd like to think that in my teen years, movies like um, Citizen Kane and 2001 and Blade Runner kind of jumped ahead, but. Yeah, Wrath of Khan, I've seen so many times. Um, so back to Wrath of Khan, I, this is a weird question to ask. Um, do you think Wrath of Khan is so good because you were you were really trying to prove to people you, you were a good director? Was Wrath of Khan good because you were hungry at the time? I think if you're not hungry making a movie, you shouldn't be making a movie to begin with. It is so demanding. And you have to have such a thick hide and such good health to just get through it. Uh, you have to have a fire in the belly about every movie that you're doing or else, you know, go away. Forget about it. Um, I don't think I was trying to prove anything. Um, I, I'm, I wish I were good at big picture thinking, but um, I read Doris Kearns Goodwin in a team of rivals about Lincoln as a as a big picture thinker and I just thought oh god I wish I could do that but um I usually see you know like headlights on a car you know a quarter mile in front of me and hope that more becomes visible by the time I get to the end of that quarter mile my job was to make this movie it was being made under very chaotic circumstances the one advantage that I had was that everybody else was so busy with other stuff 
that I was sort of not on anybody's radar. And I was just getting to make up a Star Trek world that I wanted, um, which was really based on these books that I read as a kid, the Captain Horatio Hornblower books. And I thought, oh, this is this is the Navy. We're talking about destroyers and submarines. This is Hornblower in outer space. Right. And you made it more and, of a battle the military, uh, too. And I, I was on fire. I was on fire with that idea because I thought, here's my chance to run out the guns. And I was really looking forward to that. And, and um, I loved writing the script. I loved writing Khan. Um, they showed me the episode that was the original Space Seed. And yeah, that and writing Sherlock Holmes stuff is my, you know, sort of familiar stomping ground. Well, how did you pick up on like so much of the show? You, I mean, you condensed, I mean, you got, they always talk about the triumvirate between uh, Kirk, uh, McCoy and Spock. Um, but you sound like you really, I mean, you mentioned you had the person in college who watched a bunch of episodes and they showed you a few episodes for that, but you got the voice pretty down. Was that just the process of talking to the actors or and especially distilling what made the sh um, Star Trek, Star Trek too? The credit for that must go to the producer of the movie, Harve Bennett. Harve who had done the Six Million Dollar Man and Mod Squad, and he did the first, you know, sort of miniseries, Rich Man, Poor Man. He was a, a brilliant and very sweet guy. And he watched all 59 or whatever there were episodes of the 79, thing. 79, I think, yeah. Which I would never have dreamt of doing. Um, and he was the one who isolated the Spock, McCoy, Kirk triumvirate um, and sort of pointed out this stuff to me. Um, and originally I was contracted to direct a screenplay that hadn't yet, uh, come in. And then I said, well, where is it? And, uh, Harv said, I, I can't show it to you. It's not very good. And this was draft five. Uh, so I said, well, where's draft four? Where's draft three? And he said, well, those are just different attempts to get a second feature out of this they're not related and it was my idea ultimately i'm giving you the short version to uh, combine them all make a laundry list of things that we liked in any of these five drafts it could be a plot a subplot a sequence a scene a character a line of dialogue i didn't care and we made that list I will, um, you know, I know when I first read View from the Bridge, the first thing I took from that was you like you wrote the movie in 12 days. That's essentially true, except that it was cobbled together and then rewritten from these other. Out. The dialogue was substantively all mine. I don't believe I took lines from anybody. Harv put in a couple of lines. Would you like a tranquilizer? Um uh, Captain, this is the garden spot of CD Alpha. You know, those were Harv's lines. I remember them very well. But the rest of the dialogue is mine. And the fitting together of the Rubik's Cube of Kirk meets his son, Khan, the Genesis Project, Lieutenant Savick, you know, all that stuff was somehow 
what was done in 12 days. Okay. And then it was and then it was just like endlessly refining it. Well, so I got a big question for you. Um, you you did this just jumping in to make sure that you had a movie you could direct. Um, I know on your website you list this as a movie you've written. Do you regret uh, not getting credit on it? I always have to explain to people like you wrote this, like because it's you know the the WGA arbitration just is all over the map on the finished credits for that movie and much much less the other movies you've worked on well you know i could say i regret it but it's i i don't spend a lot of time regret you know i did what i did and i think the people i care about mainly know that i'm the guy who actually wrote it uh I suppose I could have made some money if I'd been paid for it, etc. Um, but it just, you know, it it worked out uh, ultimately. It's, it's 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 complicated, you know. And I just I realized that by agreeing to do it in, under the auspices that I did, which is to say, no auspices, that I was taking a lot of pressure off myself. If it, if it didn't work, then nobody would know. And then later on, when Paramount did the first DVD of it, and they interviewed me, and I told the whole story, essentially as I've described it here. And um, the lady in charge of DVDs, who became a good friend of mine, said, you know, the lawyers say we can't use any of this. Really? And yeah, they, they thought it would compromise Paramount with the Writers Guild. And I said, well, why don't you take me out of the documentary entirely then? Because if I can't tell the truth, that doesn't interest me to be in it. You've been known to pull she, moves like this before. You talk about this on the day after, whenever the, the standards and practices stuff came into play. So she said, that's what I hoped you would say. I'll get back to you. And so the byproduct of the solution to this was one of the more worthwhile things I've done for movies, because what they came back with was the Nicholas Meyer clause, which all studios have. The opinions expressed in this DVD about the making of the movie are not those of fill in the blank, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, MGM, now you can actually get, collect oral histories and tell the, and tell truth instead of all these sort of puff pieces that used to be true of featurettes. So it's, it was a good thing I did. So Ravicon was a commercial success, pretty well critical success. Um, what kind of stuff were you being offered after that? What scripts were you reading at the time? That was that was the second movie. I think the third movie I did was the day after was a TV movie. Yeah. but, uh, but Nuclear I mean, War. Nothing memorable was in between that? Or that was just because... I don't know. Maybe it was, but I can't remember. It was a long time ago. I just remember my own chronology. Okay. Um, and I was, the, I was the third or fourth director who was offered it. And who wants to make a movie about nuclear war? I had a hit movie. I was having a good time. Um... But I was also being psychoanalyzed at the time, and I was lying on the couch trying to talk myself out of doing this movie. And my analyst, who seldom spoke, 
said, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. And the moment he said that, I knew I had to do the movie. I actually just watched this for the first time three years ago, four years ago. Um, the, the most interesting thing when I was watching it was uh, I got the DVD and I thought I was watching a regular feature link thing. I forgot it was a, uh, did it end up being a two night thing or was it only the single night you guys got it down to? You got it down to one night. Yeah, um, because all the advertisers fled. Right. And you guys didn't show having the advertisements after the bomb drop. But what was fascinating to me was not anticipating that um, and just being used to 90-minute, uh, two-hour movies. When it started feeling longer, I just remember this, like, just sense of dread. Like, it was in, in, and it was intense and just how just disturbing it got and more and more disturbing. And I just kept thinking, this was on the air in the 80s, on network, on ABC in the 80s? Barely, barely, it almost didn't get on. Uh, and I, I guess I never thought it would get on, and I tried to tell them that, and they sort of laughed. But at the end, there were so many disclaimers before the movie even began. Uh, and people saying, you know, if you're under, you know, 15, don't watch it alone, and have your clergyman or call this number in case of, you know, on and on and on and on and on. But they, and they did, censor it they did chop out stuff but in in fact it was sort of the optimists version of nuclear war if if you had shown them you know threads or what a real nuclear war would be like people would have just reached for the remote and clicked the thing off so it was a balancing act it was also a balancing act in another way which is to say i didn't want it to be a really good movie because if it was a really good movie People would talk about the movie and not about the subject no one wants to talk about, which is nuclear war. Well, so people came away saying, wow, wasn't Jason Robards fantastic? And how about that cinematography and the music? My God, I love that theme song. No, I didn't want any of that. If it, you thought that too much aesthetic success with the movie would have deterred from the point of it? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. It was a counterintuitive effort, by the way. It was, it was, it was, it was, I wanted to make a, a public service announcement. I didn't want to make a, you know, an Academy Award contender. Sure. But it's it's fascinating because you detail a lot of the ways in the book. It, it might have affected Reagan. We've seen his biographer said it was one of the only times that it did affect him. It seen him depressed. It did affect him. Well, I mean, most filmmakers right now, especially the Oscar bait ones, we're constantly looking for things that are going to change the public conversation. And uh, you could have made a um, beautiful Oscar-winning movie that didn't change anybody's mind versus something like this that seems like it really did move the needle on on uh, people being like Reagan's stance on nuclear arms at the time and how it pushed him. Like this, the all. Your version seems to be the way we should go, or the more preferable way. Well, things have changed since this movie was made. This con this country is now so hopelessly polarized, um, and half the people in this country are tuned to another station entirely. They wouldn't dream of seeing a movie like The Day After, whether it was on TV or in a movie theater. Um, there's a whole branch of uh, journalism that nobody, books that nobody reads, 
political, you know, and the other half the same. It's a it's a very terrifying schism. I suspect it's the worst state this country has been in since the Civil War. Well, you're talking to someone who moved to the Midwest because I wanted to pop, or back to the Midwest because I wanted to pop my bubble and make sure I wasn't being blinded by uh, where I was living. Um, real briefly, I do want to move on to uh, Volunteers, which I just watched last night, as I mentioned earlier. Um, which I mean, you had. Are we going to get to the Holmes books or the Protocols? I, I should mention I am um, about halfway through the current book. Uh, I, I jumped back into View for the Bridge or View from the Bridge, but. Um, yeah, so what led you to come back to the Holmes books? Donald Trump. Oh, so that, that that's why we wanted to segue to here, because we were talking about the state of the country. So the Trump... Probably, it's what made me think of it anyway. Okay, so, I mean, you were familiar with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or their reputation before this? I'm interested in forgery. I've always been interested in forgery. I am a forger. Okay. My Watson manuscripts... You know, purport to be Watson, purporting to be Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, so once you get interested in forgery, and there's off here, you can't see it, I guess. There's a whole library just about forgery. Okay. All kinds. Of, and when you are interested in forgery and the moral, ethical, aesthetic, financial considerations that spill off what we'll call you know, fakes, scams, hoaxes, fake news. The most destructive hoax of all time turns out to be something called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And I found, started reading about these, which for your listeners who may not be familiar, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion purports to be the minutes of a secret meeting of Jews plotting to take over the world, whatever that may mean. And it turns out they were first concocted by the secret police of Tsar Nicholas II, the Okrana, in 1903. And they have been debunked as phony almost from the moment they first appeared. But they never last as phony. I mean, Hitler quoted them. Vladimir Putin quotes them. Henry Ford. Henry Ford, yeah. Henry Ford published all of them in his newspaper. He got sued. And there are a hit television series in Egypt. They're still around in Louisiana. They're in textbooks throughout the Middle East. They haven't gone anywhere. I didn't know those last few facts. I didn't know about Egypt or Louisiana. Finish the book. Finish okay. the book. Okay, we'll do. So... You you talk earlier in the book about your ambivalence about going to the second Holmes books, and this is your fourth now. Like, um, but there was the how many year gaps between the third? Twenty six. Twenty six year gap. Do you feel that itch to get your stories out there? Was that part of the reason to do it? Was, or was it just simply Trump? Uh, it's funny. The first time I ever mentioned this book was in Indiana, ten years ago. I think I've read this article about you were hanging around Bloomington and you were talking. Yeah. Okay. With a friend of mine, Adam Langer, who was an, also a novelist. And Adam reminded me when this book came out, she said, he said, you remember the first time we talked about this, you and I were walking around that square in Bloomington, and 
I said, he said to me, when are you going to do this? And I said, one day. And I read, I came across two books in the next 10 years, which sort of jump-started the whole thing. One was the Will Eisner uh, graphic novel about the protocols. And the other was a book by a professor, Stephen Zipperstein of Stanford, um, about the pogrom in Kishinev. And that all ties in with the protocols. And that sort of gave me enough uh, stimulus and background information in order to say, it's now or never. And it became a much more, much more urgent thing. I had no idea 10 years ago when I was writing it, or were thinking of writing it, I should say, that it would turn out to be something, that it would be acquire an urgency, a relevance. I didn't know that. But that was the that was the fire under your ass to get the this this version of it out. Well, by the time I was finished, I was riding this, you know, grotesque wave of modern anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a uh, weird time. I remember I saw a Facebook post of right after the election, someone posting a, a swastika on a New York subway. Yeah, it's oh, there's a, just some. Orthodox rabbi just got stabbed in his house yesterday or the day before. Was they having a Hanukkah? Much less the Pittsburgh shootings. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know how to get off from that from that subject. It's it's. Uh, um, well, I'm, you can you can edit it, re-edit this any way you want, right? I guess I'm trying not to edit it, and also it's just in general like I. I I'm still trying to figure out how much I want to talk about politics on here too, um, just because it's it's such the weird thing about the Midwest that I'm finding being back here is that um, no one wants to talk about it. It's the whole religion and politics. People just don't want to talk about it, and then they go into a voting booth and then they exert their influence. So but how how can we? I mean, I agree that this is exhausting and dispiriting. Uh, the, the place in which we find ourselves, for sure. At the same time, I think talking is probably better than fighting. Oh, so yeah, and fighting probably is... Probably better keep talking. Fighting is the wrong way to go. The two big things I've been thinking a lot during the Trump years are that two things, people don't like to be told they're wrong, and the informed voter and the uninformed voter can cancel each other's votes out. I, I just like to think that the people in the Midwest actually, they're they're not the noble rednecks voting against their own self-interest without knowing it. There's something going on that it's hard to pin. Well, speaking as somebody who spent four of the happiest years of my life in the state of Iowa, uh, I have a lot of faith in Midwestern people. That's that's good to hear, and it's yeah, it's it's a constant reminder to be around. So, who are you reading right now? I am doing a lot of research on ancient Egypt. Really? For I'm reading a lot about archaeology. Is this for a hobby or a project? It's a project. Okay, I won't I won't dive a little too much into that. Um, Deceivers. Uh, I didn't realize this looking at the book. Um, you worked with Ken Adams. Adam. Yeah, Ken Adam. Ken Adam. I, I, I worked with him three times. Um, the first time he designed the 7% solution, 
The second time, he designed The Deceivers, and the third time, he designed my flop movie company business. But uh, he became a sort of uh, Dutch uncle to me. And for your listeners who may not be aware, Ken Adam was arguably the most famous production designer, you know, in the last 50 years. Right. It's, Dr. It's Strange loved the, the Bond, early Bond movies. Seven Bond movies, Barry Lyndon, yeah. Dr. Strangelove, um, Around the World in 80 Days. <laughs> uh, there, there's, a long, there's a long list, uh, The Addams Family Values. I it guess I on had in my head on. this idea that he stopped after Barry Lyndon or something where he just, he's like he couldn't be topped and he was done with the movie business. I was wrong. No, he, Ken Adam, his real name was not Ken Adam, it was Klaus Adam, and he was born in Berlin. And he escaped Berlin with his family, and uh, he became the only German-Jewish fighter pilot in the RAF. He flew typhoons. Um, that was nervous breakdown number one. Um, and uh, but all he ever wanted really to do was design movies. He got his flight training in 1940 in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay, uh, this is a, a question that's going to take a little bit of um, uh, thought, but if you can... Oh, God, if thought. You, if you can guess, how many scripts have you written? A hundred? One over, uh, just rounded around number hundred, or... Yeah, yeah, I'm saying maybe I've written a hundred scripts. Um, how many, I mean, obviously... How many have been made? No, I'm saying... How many of them do you think are going all, to get made? All the best ones. How many do you think are going to be made? How many are you going to direct still? That's a tough well, question. I, I stopped directing in 1993 when my wife died. I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old who are now, I'm happy to say, are grown-up young women and masterpieces, through no fault of mine, by the way. Um, but uh, I just... I had to be the mom. Okay. And so I stopped directing, and the thing about being a writer is I was always home. I was always home. You could always come see me. Were you in, I, uh, were you in L.A. or London for this? We came back from London weeks before she died. We'd been living in London. Okay. And we came back to L.A. in the middle of October, and November 5th, 1993, she had died. Um, and if you had told me then that my directing career was over, I, you can't tell people what they're not prepared to hear. And I wasn't prepared to hear that. I had to learn it the hard way. Um, but the end result was that I stopped. I did one film in the 90s Vendetta. for HBO. Vendetta. Yeah, good movie. And... Um, but I think I'd be playing a lot of catch-up now, technologically, uh, to direct. Uh, I can tell you firsthand you wouldn't. You'd be fine. But, I mean, the the thing I always struggle when I, my, my friends are directors is the hustling aspect. That, that's the thing that demoralizes me, watching them try to yeah, get their movies it's made. it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. So, um, I... You uh, you wrote the two Roth adaptations. Uh, you um, you wrote the Teddy Roosevelt movie for Scorsese. 
Yeah. All my best scripts are usually not made. What happened with that? The Roosevelt one? I don't know. He called me up very excited after he read it. It was a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and I'd had minor surgery the day before, so I thought I was hallucinating. And then nothing happened. Uh, what was um, Star Trek Discovery? What was your contribution on that? I was on the in the writer's room for the first year of it. Do, I mean, how, um, much, how much was in the show of uh, contribution? Well, I was assigned to write the second episode, and uh, I did. It got changed a lot. I remember watching uh, that and waiting for your byline, because I remember vaguely hearing that you were in the second or third episode, and then when the byline, or the um, credit didn't come up, I just kept waiting. Oh, it's the next episode, and I just kept watching, waiting for it to happen. Well... It just, it's sort of, it was getting that show up and running. Uh, it had a lot of false starts. Uh, and, you know, there were several delays in getting it on the air and all kinds of things went down. And at the end, I think I kind of shook myself or got shaken out of the mix. Okay, so if, if it had a, what, uh, two-year two writing process, you were in the first year then? That's what you are saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you were writing a, a Rath, or a con miniseries, an origin miniseries for a while? I did. Alex Kurtzman uh, invited me, commissioned me, to write a three-hour or three-night uh, adventure of Khan on CD Alpha 5 after he was marooned there by Kirk. And I really loved what I did. But by the time I finished it, the model for what television, uh, streaming television was looking for was no longer three hours. They wanted something longer. By the time I, the thing was finished, the, the thing was sort of um, structurally obsolete. And I said, well, then, you know, hire me to expand it. But they didn't. Nothing's happened from that. No. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, in the book the scripts you feel you've done, you were happiest with were um, you have a script about the making of the Brooklyn Bridge, you have uh, Doyle's White Company, and uh, the Odyssey. Were the, are those, those and also uh, and the Crook Factory. The Crook Factory. The Crook Factory. Yeah, What's Dan that? Simmons. What is that? The Crook Factory is a novel by Dan Simmons that takes place in 1942 and is about an FBI agent who gets summoned to Washington from Mexico City where he's been killing Nazi would-be infiltrators. And um, Hoover says, I want you to go to Havana. There's a writer down there, an American writer, who wants to set up his own counter espionage network in the Caribbean. And I think he's a commie. I want you to go down there and find out what that's all about. And this FBI agent, Joe Lucas, has never read a work of fiction in his life and has never heard of Ernest Hemingway. Um, oh. So thinking this whole thing is a colossal waste of time, he goes down and joins the Hemingway menage, his counter-espionage operation was called the Crook Factory. 
That's what he called it. And it's a true story. And he had whores, fishermen, street urchins, high lie players, one millionaire, all Cuba was crawling with Nazis at the time. And I guess Lucas figures the last thing they're going to come up with is anything interesting or significant. There's a war on. This is a colossal waste of time, except that it isn't. Huh. That's the book. Um, and it's really, ultimately, it's about a young man's discovery of art in the midst of all the bells and whistles of a World War II film noir buddy action thriller. With him complete And submarines. And submarines. Um, what, uh, what kind of stuff, the book, what kind of stuff has been, uh, between View from the Bridge and now, what kind of stuff's happened with your career that wasn't in the book? Since well, I did uh, Houdini. I co-created the Medici, uh, Masters of Florence, and I've been writing screenplays. Some of them will get made. Some of them won't. Nature of the Beast, I guess, is what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Or is there any other and novels on the docket? I've got one in mind. That might or not, might not be about Egypt. Um, I guess that pretty much... I mean, I want to talk a lot about Star Trek VI a little bit, I think, for expediency's sake. I'll, I'll, I'll go over that. I did want to say it's really been a pleasure talking to you about... Just, I can tell you how much I love Wrath of Khan, but all your filmmaking, but... It's amazing to tell you to to your you know digital face that uh, how much Rathacon's meant to me over the years. It's nice to hear, and it's nice to be able to see your face uh, telling me it, it. As I said before, it means something. Yeah, and there's a lot of other people out there who feel this way. So, uh, Nicholas Meyer, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Sure.